You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. Today, I'm going to be talking with Matt Muir, communications consultant, writer for satirical British news magazine, Private Eye, and creator of Web Curios. And Web Curios, if you don't know it, is a weekly online newsletter where Matt spotlights the most interesting stuff on the internet, often from the angle of how brands and creatives can take inspiration from all the crazy stuff on the web and use it in their own work. So if you aren't aware of Web Curios, go and check it out. It's well worth subscribing. And welcome, Matt. First of all, I'd like to have a quick chat about what you've seen in the past week that may be making its way into the next Web Curios. There's some stuff that I have seen this week that I think is interesting. Netflix has um, just opened its online merchandise shop, which I believe is available in the US, but possibly not internationally at the moment. Um, this is uh, Netflix.shop, should anyone want to go and uh, check it out. And this is where Netflix sells all of the associated uh, clothing merchandise for its various popular shows. You can probably get a Stranger Things branded sweatshirt or, or hoodie or baseball cap. And I th- what's interesting about this is that, you know, we've been seeing for quite a while now virtual brands moving into, into physical retail as a means of brand building, but also to a certain extent monetizing. I mean, I don't think... This is going to become a major revenue driver for Netflix, but I could also imagine them making not insignificant numbers from it. There was also the case of, uh, and this is something I put in the blog about a month ago, of Poolside um, FM, which your listeners may or may not remember as, as an online radio station that has been around for the past three, four years, which kind of peddles this vaguely vapor-wavy 80s poolside aesthetic and plays kind of 80s vapor-wavy kind of music, which a few months ago launched another brand called Vacation Inc., which is a weirdly kind of ARG-ish, multi-layered narrative thing about this company from the 80s that sells sunscreen, except the sunscreen is real. So this is a digital brand that had an online radio station that ostensibly was, I think, just someone's hobby project. It became popular enough that they decided to spin out the brand into a physical product that they are now retailing online. And this is sunscreen that they're selling for 20 bucks a pop, which you know feels like a lot of money for sunscreen. I don't know about you. But um, but yes, yeah, so I thought that was a, that was an interesting example of a coming trend that I'm seeing a lot more of sort of digital brand moving into physical space. And then I suppose the other most interesting thing that I've seen from a brand marketing point of view this week is is Pornhub, who are you know, for years have been by far and away some of the best internal PRs that I've been aware of. They are consistently brilliant at getting your attention. One might argue that uh, when you're talking about sex and wanking, it's not hard to get people's attention, but still they they, they do a better job than they probably need to. And this is them taking um, a bunch of very old school pornography from the turn of the 20th century. Um, They've got, I think, five or six examples from approximately 1910 through to the early 1940s, which they've um, recolored using artificial intelligence, partly as, I think, a means tacitly peddling their own image recognition and AI credentials, which I know they're verging a lot under the hood. And partly is just a, like a really, really good way of getting traffic. So yeah, should you uh, should you want to masturbate in the manner that your grandparents did, you can log on to pornhub.com forward slash art forward slash remastered. That's remastered spelt with the big play on words that you associate with masturbation, should you so want to do. So there you go. There's a, there's, there's a few selections, possibly more sexually uh, oriented than you might have been wanting, but that's, that's what you get. 
Well, this is this is pretty. I mean, I think uh, this is a great introduction to you know the kind of stuff you find on Web Curios and the kind of tone of voice that you find on Web Curios, which obviously <laughs> is not the most uh, reverent. So I think probably for for those who who aren't aware of, of Web Curios and your, yourself, maybe we could you could sort of explain a little bit about who you are and why your opinions on these sorts of things are worth reading because i know that they are but uh, maybe you could sort of explain a little bit more about you know how, what you work in and you know why you're doing web curios in the first place web curios is a, a very is is what i like to describe as the longest linked based newsletter on the internet it's not the best it's not the most comprehensive but it's certainly the longest work out and um, it basically covers the reason I do it is because there is an awful lot of interesting stuff on the internet, and and people, much as much as the persona I, I choose to write in, suggest that I hate people in humanity, which is broadly true in many respects. People, people are wonderful and infinitely creative, and the web is the greatest canvas for human creativity that we've ever had. The most democratic and the most open and the most infinitely discoverable. And one of the sad things about the shift from web one to web two, and then the subsequent way in which the web has developed has been the, the funneling of our attention to approximately five or six websites every day, and that's it. And the vast majority of people, if, if you survey them, this is, I think, actually an interesting line of inquiry that more planners and strategists should probably devote time to looking at. But most people won't look at more than six or seven websites a week, realistically speaking, in terms of ones they actively navigate to, and two or three of those social networks, which means that the experience of the internet is so flattened and disintermediated and and what we get is a tiny fraction of the brilliant output that people make every day and web curious exists i suppose in some small way to to bring some of the interesting stuff from all around the web made by made by individuals or small groups of people passion projects or or even things that are terrible and wrong but at the very least interesting to a wider audience as to why anyone should listen to me, I mean, you shouldn't. God knows, God knows my colleagues don't. But I've been doing like communication stuff for, for 20 years. I am I am a generic media wanker, much as I imagine all of you listening to this. And as such, I am, I, I am one of you, in my opinion, counts as much as yours. I mean, one of the things I like about Web Curios the most is that, you know, despite being a generic media wanker, you, you do sort of pick up on ideas and sort of talk about how brands can nick them, you know, which I think is one of the most useful things about Web Curios for other generic media wankers. Maybe you could talk, I mean, you talked a little bit there about, about Pulsar FM, but maybe there's some other ideas that you've seen recently that you think, you know, okay, this is something that a brand could steal and, uh, and take somewhere new. What was interesting, actually, at the beginning of lockdown was the incredible burst of creativity and, and individual projects and things that popped up, most of which weren't on social media. And I think that was, that was a really interesting shift. And I think I am seeing a, a re resurgence, I suppose I would call it, in, in individuals, but also to a certain extent brands at the, at the savvier end of the spectrum. And like, I like to lampoon luxury brands because I'm not the sort of person who can ever afford any of the things that they sell, and so it's probably a self-defense mechanism. But one of the things that they are very good at is, is being ahead of certain things. They have enough money that they can throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And luxury brands have, for the past 12 to 18 months, been doing a lot more in terms of individual standalone websites rather than social content. And I'm starting to see more and more and more brands and individuals moving away from content made to social, which is fundamentally ephemeral, hard to track and and has very very little very very a very small long tail if that's not not tomorrow term towards stuff that is based on satellite websites purely because it's it's ownable it can exist longer it can work harder for you 
One thing that I think is, is interesting is the extent to which so much of the web now is no code. And it's incredibly easy for so many people who are curious and a little bit technically savvy to build really quite interesting and fun and amazing things. So I was playing around with something this week, which is a really silly little website, which um, someone has set up, which tells you a joke. And then using your webcam, sees whether or not you're laughing. And you have to try and keep a straight face for as many jokes as possible, which isn't hard because A, you're on your own and who the fuck laughs at jokes when they're sitting on their own in front of a computer, not that many people. And also the jokes aren't that good. But the premise of this, and this is all, this is, no one's coded that facial recognition stuff. That's literally just pulled off GitHub, plugged into a standard WordPress um, skeleton, and the rest of it's been cobbled up around it. But all you need is the idea now. And I think that that is really, really interesting. And that's something that I think more people working within brand marketing, advertising, and the, the associated disciplines should remember that the scope to do interesting and creative things with what feel like cutting edge technologies has never been greater. And the technology isn't really even that cutting edge anymore. Anyone can cobble together this sort of stuff. One more trend that I, I have seen, but I don't think brands are picking up on at all. But the past year, we've all seen so much more online video and people have made so much more online video. One of the great and amazing things about TikTok has been just the, the incredible growth, the, the, the hockey stick growth, to use an unpleasant VC analogy, of creativity in editing and, and scene development and storytelling and narrative. And it's TikTok's kind of like the weird culmination of about four generations of online video, from like the democratization of it through YouTube to Vine changing the way in which people told stories on the internet via video and prioritizing quick, sharp, snappy, um, beat-driven storytelling, punchlines and call and response things and all the rest of it. Through the stories that kind of brought some of the like the zine aesthetic of the 70s and 80s. For those of you old enough to remember, zines being photocopied, same as that magazine content that was photocopied together on a Xerox in your mum's office so you could distribute it at school. And, and TikTok's kind of taken all of that and given it superpowers. I mean, the in-app the in editing tools on TikTok are amazing. And you will all have seen examples that have done the rounds on Twitter or on Facebook. Of, oh my God, you have to see this kid do this incredible video with the lip syncing and the quick transitions and the rest of it. Why, why are brand videos so shit still? Like everyone, everyone working in brand video has been doing the same thing as everyone else and sitting at home and watching video bored out of their tiny little minds on their phones for 17 hours a day. But why has no one learned any of these things? Why is nobody going and saying, excuse me, 20-year-old child, here's 500 quid. Can you make us something good, please? Like you, it is ridiculous, the, the online video for brands. And this is not just consumer or corporate. It's everything. And there's so much opportunity and potential that I feel is being underused. And I think the first brands to really embrace this will will really see the benefit. There was Recently, I was, I was at an airport on the day of the Champions League final. And Nike had bought out all of the video advertising within the airport and were running their pre-Champions League ads. And the adverts there, were they were, they were done like a TikTok. And it was amazing. It was, the, it was the first time that I'd seen this done well, large scale in an outdoor ad campaign. And it was properly arresting. I mean, I didn't think the ads were particularly brilliant, but it was more that they, they'd nailed the aesthetic in a way that I've, I'm yet to see other brands do. And I think the more the that brands doing video can lean into prevailing aesthetics on platforms such as TikTok and, and embrace them and learn from them, the, the better they will do. And frankly, the, the sooner we'll be saved from tedious, tedious, terrible branded video content.
one of the things I wanted to talk about, which sort of uh, relates to that, is this idea that that all these trends, all this technology, this whole idea of internet culture moves so fast or appears to move so fast if you're sort of very online, like I, I imagine we both are. And brands, I guess, perhaps sometimes feel like, you know, the lead times that they have on projects, you know, if they try and tap into a, a current trend, they're going to miss the mark somehow. Do you, I mean, in your experience as a consultant, have you had those sorts of conversations and what do you think is, you know, the, the, the way around it? I'm old enough to remember the first boom of this sort of thing. So when, when I left my last proper full-time five days a week gig in, oh, it must have been at the end of 2012, I think, I, I shortly after that was, was approached by the, the world's largest independent PR agency, guess if you will, who that might be, to come and work with them on their reactive real-time content war room, which, which was a bad idea then and is still a terrible idea now. But the idea behind that was that they would have a bunch of creatives and strategists in a room watching Twitter at all times and churning out reactive branded content. I think someone had seen the Oreo Super Bowl thing. But the conversation hasn't changed, right? The, if you are a brand, that is, I suppose it depends on it's about the pace of trends. Memes move incredibly quickly. By the time, realistically speaking, by the time I have seen a meme, it is probably too late or it is just about to be custom being too late for a brand to make hay with it. And I say that because I'm a 41-year-old white man. Um, like, dude, I'm not, I'm not on the cutting edge of anything anymore. Conversely, though, aesthetic trends, visual trends, move slightly more slowly. You know, there, there are certain aesthetic that, that we can pinpoint as having been around for a while. So, so vaporwave, for example, became a became, kind of became a thing. What around about early to mid Tumblr era, so about 2013. But it's still peddling around now, and it's still it's still viable as a as a look and a feel and the options of it. I think I think it's too easy to to either become a, a zeitgeist chasing. We must do a baked beans thing. We must do a baked beans thing, um, idiot. But also to say we can't do any of these things because we can't, we won't, we can't help but look but lame. I think it's it's a factor of a couple of things. It's firstly about knowing your brand and knowing your right to play in these spaces. The vast majority of brands don't have any right to play in popular culture because they have nothing to do with popular culture. The ones that do should know who they are. The ones that don't should also know who they are and should stay away. But secondly, it's about understanding the difference in pace of change and the difference between ephemeral content trends and broader uh, broader stylistic and narrative trends. Wow, that's, that, that, was, that sounded pretentious, sorry. But I do think it's an important distinction to make and, and knowing the difference will define your ability to be able to react to these things or not. As we've sort of discovered, your approach is obviously quite irreverent, but in Web Curios and also in your private eye writing, you are quite seriously critical of some of the, the bigger tech giants and some of the sort of, I guess, the direction of travel that some of this sort of internet world is, is heading in. And so I, I, I wonder whether you think we are heading to a good place or a bad place with technology. I mean, I, I've been writing a lot about the creator economy, things like Web3, decentralization, the dreaded NFTs, which I know you're a big fan of, and all these things which have, you know, some very interesting implications for, as you, as you pointed out, more democratization of creativity. So I, I have a fairly positive feeling about, you know, sort of internet culture generally, but there's no, there's no getting away from the fact that, you know, the big giants still have a huge amount of control. What do you, what do you think about all this? 
I mean, I mean, it's 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 a complex and multi-layered question that I wouldn't presume to be able to give a definitive answer. I have a slight problem with with techno optimism as a, as a thing, and this isn't the idea of being optimistic about technology so much as it is the idea that tech is going to make everything better. I see I see a lot of in certain sort of more more vaguely alt righty circles of the internet, you know, the the the, the kind of the, people who, who take Steven Pinker and run with him, this idea that, you know, there has never been a better time to be alive in human history. Look at the gadgets we've got. Look at all of these things. I'd say that this is true. This is 100% true, but that this, to quote Gibson, is not evenly distributed. And, and I think the problem, and I'm quoting now from an essay that is actually going to be in, in Curios, so apologies for the slight spoilers here, but let, let me quote this to you directly. The history of technology certainly demonstrates that there have been moments throughout history when technological shifts have made large significant changes. Though careful historians have worked diligently to emphasize that, contrary to popular narratives, those shifts were rarely immediate and usually interwoven with a host of social, political, and economic changes. Nevertheless, techno-optimism keeps people waiting for that next big technological leap forward. The hopeful confidence in that big technological jump, which is surely just around the corner, keeps us sitting patiently as things remain largely the same or steadily get worse. I think it's important to remember <laughs> that technology is, is, is a reflection of us. The tech we develop is a reflection of who we are as a society and the problems that we have require societal change rather than technological change. And the yeah, we can't we can't expect you know magical apps are going to uh, solve problems. But this idea of the creator economy, right? There was there was an interview with with Daniel Ek a while back, who's the the Spotify guy, and he was talking and very positively. And don't get me wrong, this is, this is broadly speaking good, right? He was talking about the idea that Spotify will be able to make it possible for for one or two million musicians to make a living from music, and that's great. But then you think that's 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 not very many people, is it, Daniel? <laughs> and that's and that's fine as well. Not everyone needs to be able to make a living from music, but the the absolute disconnect between the promise that we are being sold by platforms left, right, and centre of this creative economy, whereby everybody can be a creator, and all you need, all you need to be able to subsist in this wonderful new world order in which the means of production are infinitely available to everyone, and digital tools are free and easy, is an idea and the, the smarts and the work ethic and just the you know just gumption to get in there and make stuff, and you'll find your audience. Blah blah. Like no, that's not true, is it? Like, come on, if we run the numbers here, if we run the numbers, is it really possible for this to work on an economic basis? I have my serious doubts. It doesn't strike me as viable long-term. And I think my main problem with it is that it suits an awful lot of people at the top of these content pyramids to peddle this lie. And it isn't going to suit a lot of the people who get sucked into the belief that there is an economic future in making not particularly good digital art. Yes, well, I mean, yeah, as we say, staying away from the NFT side of things, I would say I'm a little bit more optimistic than you. And uh, were you interested in finding out why, then obviously you can subscribe to Stylus and, and read my work all about it. But moving on, I ask my guests every episode three quickfire questions. And the first one is, what's the best business or career advice you've ever been given? Realistically, don't be such an arsehole. <laughs> I wish I'd listened. Second one is, what's a consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet? Oh, that's very good. Um, I think choice. Choice, choice, is, choice is an interesting one. We have, we have gone from a point of, of very limited choice to a position of almost infinite choice very, very, very quickly. And I think the problem of 
consumers being overwhelmed by said choice is one which people are trying to fix algorithmically increasingly. But what, what, there was a fascinating piece that I read recently about the evolution of Netflix's recommendation algorithm, which is really worth looking at. It's very technical, but it's interesting from the point of view of a 12-year iteration process, basically, and the fact of how hard they've had to work and how long it's taken them to get to this point where anyone who uses Netflix will know that the vast majority of your time spent using Netflix is flicking through things that you don't want to watch in order to find something that they may be vaguely you do. Uh, if Netflix hasn't nailed this yet, that would, with all of this expertise and all of this data and all of this time and money thrown at it, that would suggest that kind of no one has. And I find, I think this is a really, 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 really interesting one. And I'm not 100% certain that the algorithmic curation will quite ever get there, or at least not in the next 10 years. And so therefore, I think there's an interesting, there's a gap there. Finally, which individuals or brands <laughs> do you look to for inspiration in your work? <laughs> I laughed after brands because I can't imagine that there are brands um, you look to for inspiration, but let, I mean, you I'll never know. I, I, I don't look at brands for inspiration. I, I, I largely hate them. Individuals, individuals, mostly people who don't work in advertising, marketing, or PR. I'll be honest with you, because because we're we're all we're all not that interesting, and most of us don't have things that are that interesting to say. So I think my my go to for for inspiration and knowing what is going on around broad internet culture is uh, Ryan Broderick, who used to write for BuzzFeed, but now writes a newsletter called Garbage Day, which I unreservedly recommend. Um, it comes out about three times a week. It is always interesting. It is um, always intelligent, and Ryan has a, a a brilliant perspective on on how internet culture works. So I, I probably I probably pick him for a general overview of direction of travel of the web and where we are going as a society. Fantastic. Well, I think alongside Ryan and Garbage Day, which I also subscribe to, I would very much recommend Web Curios, of course. What's the what's the URL? Is it webcurios.com? It's webcurios.co.uk. I am a proud patriot and would never have a .com URL. Fair enough. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Matt Muir, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live, and I'm at Christian Ward. Matt, what are you on Twitter? I am at Matt underscore Muir, M-U-I-R for avoidance of that. Brilliant. So yes, subscribe to Web Curios, follow Matt, send me feedback if you have any, and join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.